right, so I think we'll go ahead and get started. I'm Jeff Hastings, and I'm the Director of Continuing Nursing Education here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. And really, I'm happy to see really so many of you here. This is really great. It's an important topic. Um, as you know, the topic is the use of lethality assessment when working with victims of intimate partner violence in healthcare settings. And I know some of you are in maternal child health. It's a very relevant topic for you, especially. And I don't, I don't know where... Cardiac cath lab. Cardiac so cath lab. Cedric, he wants to go get that. Yes, that's great. I believe I want. Fabulous. Emergency care management emergency. Yeah, oh, great, great, good. Thanks for coming. Um, so at the conclusion of this presentation, you should be able to discuss the research-based lethality indicators by PD. And before we begin, of course, I have my typical reminders for silent cell phones and pagers, as our speaker just is. And be sure you assign the attendance sheet so that we do have a record of your attendance so that you get your CE credit. Um, your evaluation forms will be sent to you electronically probably tomorrow, and you need to be present for 80% of this um, presentation in order to earn your credit. Um, your contact hours will appear directly on your transcript in about two weeks. Um, we want you to know that neither um, our speaker nor anyone on the planning committee for today's program has reported a relationship with a commercial entity and um, no one um, uh, refused to disclose. So our speaker for um, this topic is Abby Tassel. Abby is the Assistant Director at WISE of the Upper Valley. She'll probably talk to you a little bit more about the services that WISE offers. And without further ado, I give you Abby. Thanks, <laughs> Hi, thanks for coming. Um, yep, so I'm Abby Tassel. I work at WISE. WISE is the Upper Valley's domestic and sexual violence victim advocacy organization. Um, well, we service part of Grafton County, New Hampshire, and part of Windsor County, Vermont. There's an organization likewise every place in the country. So if you're working someplace else or um, you know, end up going somewhere else, it's always good to know kind of what your local organization is. When someone is here um, at this facility, it doesn't matter where they come from, it's where they are in terms of accessing services. So we would be the organization that you would call if you have someone at um, and I'm really happy to be here talking about lethality assessment. The more I learn about lethality assessment, the more applications I find for it. And so while I am going to be introducing it, hopefully in a way that you find hope, um, helpful, also hopefully it will get your wheels sort of spinning to be thinking about ways that you might, you might use it in your own work. Um, so I'm going to be giving you some of the kind of basic ideas and things that we're doing with it, but also that you're going to take it and run with it. So as Deb said, um, we're going to be talking about the research-based indicators of lethality. And one of the things that's so useful about this is it is research-based. So for years and years, um, we've been able to tell women, for example, that um, when they leave, it's the most dangerous time in a relationship. But now we have this actual information that we can be talking about. And so um, as with other parts of working with victims of domestic violence and sexual assault, we're never going to be telling them what to do, but just we have more information that we can share so we can be working with them to try to figure out what's going to be best for them and help them go there in whatever way makes sense for them, which is really what these local organizations likewise do. So we support victims. Um, in whatever way makes sense for them, we never make decisions for them because as we'll see, 
they are really the experts in their own situations. And um, even when it comes to lethality, while these assessment tools are very helpful, in fact, the information that the victims themselves have is um, crucial in, in figuring out you know, what needs to happen in terms of the dangerousness of the situation. So before we go any further, um, I just wanted to mention, um, you know, the horror of kind of what it is that we are talking about and how closely it does resonate in our own community. We have, in fact, had two murders in the past two years of women. Um, and it just sort of brings home how important this issue is. And it's a small community, so some of you probably and um, so while I wouldn't say necessarily that we could have stopped those murders using these other tools, I will say that the tools give us more inter information to intervene and um, are certainly tools for us to think about different ways that we can be working together and in ways that aren't happening right now. So. Um, I am hopeful that we can be doing more and doing better and um, with the goal of certainly ending domestic violence and um, So um, the numbers are absolutely enormous. So we, one thing we can all be sure of is that we are all working with victims of domestic violence. So depending on the study, um, generally, because they're asking different questions, some studies say as many as half of women in the United States are experiencing, have experienced intimate partner violence. Um, this other study is talking specifically about physical and sexual abuse. Um, this is 31% of American women. Um, a pretty recent study, the Intimate Partner Sexual Violence Survey, I think it's called, 81% um, of women, 35% of men. Um, and women are 7 to 14 times more likely to be injured by a partner than men are. Um, and when we're talking about intimate partner violence, we have to be really careful not to be stereotyping at all. Like, I think it can be really easy to be like, oh, it's a certain group or, you know, a certain religion. Or, and it's not. I mean, there's no socioeconomic status, ethnicity, religion, anything that isn't impacted by this. And, like, the one... Um, identifying or higher risk group is women. So um, while I would never say that um, women can't be perpetrators, they're much um, less likely to be. At WISE, we work with about 1,000 victims a year, and um, usually about 10% are men, which is reflective of kind of the, um, our society as a whole. I think with the men, if I could ask, is it? Please. More of a male-male relationship when the men are coming in, and a homosexual relationship. Are they finding that females are actually the perpetrators to the males at that point? Yeah. yeah. So um, we do. We work with um, men who are victims um, uh, at the hands of women and of other men. Statistically, men. Um, you know, in same-sex relationship, the statistics are about the same as in. Um, male-female relationships. And um, we'll actually be talking more about some of these patterns, but you know, one of the things that does happen is we'll see men who are victims 
of um, a kind of one-time assault, and sometimes those assaults are actually self-defensive on the part of the woman. So it may be that there's been a long-term battering relationship and she's fighting back or in that moment has actually tried to defend herself. And then um, the victim of that assault, who's the man who may be the batterer in the larger mm -hmm. pattern, um, gets referred to us. But then there are you know, definitely situations in which women Um, so the Center for Disease Control, I mean, I thought we could just talk a little bit about what it is that we're talking about before we go any further. Um, and in healthcare settings, domestic violence is called intimate partner violence. And um, I think more and more the domestic violence world has started to sort of see the beauty of this um, term because it really is intimate partner violence. You know, the, it's not just anyone who's living in the home. There's a specific... Um, set of dynamics in these certain relationships. At the Center for Disease Control is talking about the tactics that are often used in intimate partner violence. So clearly physical violence, hitting, kidding, kicking, shoving, um, and sexual violence. So if one person um, is threatening someone else or has hurt someone else physically, then it becomes um, very hard for the person who's been victimized to be able to say no, even if they want to. And perpetrators of physical violence are, um, there's an enormous overlap with perpetration of sexual violence in general. So these two things go in, um, hand in hand a lot. And you'll see from when we start getting into the lethality assessment that um, perpetrating sexual violence is a risk factor for um, perpetrating, you know, higher levels of dangerousness and possibly murder. Um, threatening threats of violence and then emotional abuse. And we never want to underestimate how horrible emotional abuse is. It's not really the focus of what we're talking about today, but in terms of the impact and as um, part of the larger pa um, pattern of violence, it, it really should not be underestimated at all. So what we're really talking about is this pattern of coercive control. And um, we'll see that this controlling behavior is extremely important in lethality. And um, generally, at the beginning of violent relationships, the, the perpetrator is extremely enthusiastic, and the victim feels this sort of being swept off their feet, this sort of Hollywood romance aspect to it which if you think about it is also controlling because it's sort of hard to say no to someone who's acting like that and so it's another way of controlling the victim. And then this very gradual onset of abusive controlling behavior. Um, so undermining self-esteem, putting down the victim, um, and one of the most powerful tools in an abuser's toolbox is that because they're partnered, the victim probably has shared information about their vulnerabilities, you know, where they don't feel great about themselves, what they're working on. And abusers use that information against victims. And because the victim really believes it about themselves, they um, really, you know, find this to be extremely you know, powerful kind of way of being put down. So if my thing is, you know, I feel like I need to lose 10 pounds, then, you know, a healthy partner would say, oh, you know, let me help you, or you don't need to lose 10 pounds, or you're beautiful as you are, or whatever. 
an abuser will use that particular thing against me um, to, you know, lower my self-esteem, make me feel worse about myself, and have power over me. And then eroding social support so that, um, as the victim, you're alone and you don't have any place to go. Um, and this can be isolating physically, so certainly in the rural areas that we live in, it can be, you know, buying a farmhouse in the middle of nowhere and then, you know, convincing the victim that they have to homeschool their children and, and um, they're really alone and don't have access to other support systems. And then um, are being bombarded by these other messages and really start to be brainwashed by the perpetrator. But amazingly, isolation can also happen on college campuses. You know, there are different ways of um, perpetrators isolating the victim. Um, and then once the victim is really trapped, the abuser can do sort of anything what they, that they want with impunity because there's really no way that the victim's going to be able to escape. And um, the abuse continues after the relationship um, is supposedly over. So, you know, a lot of times people are like, oh my gosh, it's so great, you know, she left the relationship. And, um, but, and we'll see this with lethality as well. This is actually the most dangerous time. This is about control. And so when the perpetrator has completely lost control um, because the victim has left, this is when they're kind of, you know, it, anything can happen. And there, the um, violence often escalates a lot, and there's stalking, and also abuse through the court system. So, um, you know, just because there is either a civil or criminal legal system involved doesn't mean that that's going to end the abuse. And in fact, we see abusers being very sophisticated in how they manipulate people through court systems, including um, the rights and parental rights and responsibilities. So it's not uncommon for abusers to get custody of children, which um, needless to say for a victim is absolutely terrifying. So you hear this thought, so why doesn't she leave? You know, so one, I've already said, you know, because she knows that the abuse isn't gonna end. And it is not uncommon for abusers to say, I'll kill you if you leave me. And that's a serious threat. Because what we know is that it is actually after the victim has left that homicides generally happen. Um, and there are lots of other really powerful reasons. If, if she thinks that the abuser is going to get custody of the children, then she, you know parents often will say, I would much rather be here with my children and at least be able to see what's happening instead of not being here and not knowing what's happening to my kids. Um, and you know what are I'm sure you know other reasons that people say. What are other reasons that nowhere to go? Nowhere to go, right? Others? No money. No money. Sometimes they the abuser will <clears throat> when you say isolate, he'll sabotage relationships, familial relationships to isolate her from them, so she has no social resources. Totally. Totally. And um, yeah, these can be very manipulative with entire communities. And so, yeah, she can be very isolated. And sometimes the victim still also loves the perpetrator and just really wants him to change, just wants him to go back to how he was at the beginning of the relationship. Um, so there are lots of really powerful reasons that um, victims stay in relationships.
relationships. But one of the things that we are always wanting to kind of flip this question into is why is he doing that? Because and you know, so there are lots of powerful reasons that victims stay, and those are many of the things that we try to chip away at at organizations like WISE, giving our place to stay, trying to you know find financial resources, giving our community. Um, but the ultimate question, if we want to be ending intimate partner violence, is why is he doing it in the first place? Um, and the reasons are complex, but um, our society really reinforces and supports a lot of the underlying messages of um, domination and objectification. So we get, we are all these messages in the media about how women are objects. And um, that might not seem like it could be a direct correlation, but it, it's so much easier to hurt something if it's a thing than if it's an actual person. And um, we get this message again and again and again in our society that, that women actually are objects and aren't equal. And then this idea of male domination that you know men should be in control and um, that women should be submissive. And you know these are two images from media. And you know I'm not saying you know, we're all going to go out. I, I'm not planning on you know putting on a bikini and doing that right now. But um, they're just they're the messages of our society, and they are bombarding us all the time. And we really do take them in, even though it seems as though I think for most of us now, like oh, I don't really buy into that. But in so many ways, we do, even though we don't want to. And then just social learning. You know, if um, you know we see this happening in a variety of ways, and children certainly see it in their own homes and play it out themselves. When I say this, I do not want to say that boys who grow up in homes where there's domestic violence are going to become batterers. Um, it turns out that it is more likely that that will happen, and it's more likely that girls who grow up in homes where they um, experience <coughs> violence will be victims. But also, um, especially I would say for boys, we talk to so many boys and men who say, I saw that and I said to myself, that is not gonna be me. And they make a conscious decision to do everything differently in their lives. Um, there are characteristics of perpetrators and the major one is this controlling and possessive behavior that we talked about already a little bit more and the sense of entitlement that they really deserve to um, be putting this other person down and they're somehow actually um, better people. They really will consider themselves superior and um, can be great manipulators and are often striving to have a really good public image and can be very convincing and good at this. And um, I still remember O.J. Simpson. So, you know, he was just such a good example of this where he was, so people loved him and everyone wanted him to be advertising their, um, you know, whatever they were trying to sell us. And um, he was clearly, you know, abusing his ex-wife whether or not he killed her. Um, and you see this again and again. So, you know, we are all working with abusers and um, we don't know it and they tend to be, you know, very friendly, lovely human beings um, interacting in, with people outside of their intimate relationships. And it makes it that much harder for the victim to be believed 
um, or to leave, especially if the abuser has power in the community. And in our communities, in our you know rural communities where people are so connected to each other, it can make it that much harder because um, victims feel that much less likely that they're ever going to need to leave because everyone just loves him so much. Abusers always deny and minimize the abuse and will blame the victim and say, you know, she's just crazy. You know, it's not what I'm doing to her. It's that that was just, and I'm actually trying to help her, um, you know, because she's mentally ill. And abusers will often see themselves really as victims. And this is important in general, but in particular important when we're trying to figure out the dangerousness of a specific situation because we cannot depend on the perpetrator's report in any way, shape, or form when we're trying to determine um, dangerousness or lethality of a specific situation. So um, battering, and by battering I mean this pattern of coercive control isn't caused by mental illness or physical illness. So we know people get cranky, um, or you know, people may you know be depressed and um, having a hard time and not be as much fun to be around. But that's different from this pattern of coercive control. Now we also see um, you know people who have post-traumatic stress disorder, and in particular men who are coming back from combat who are diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, and you know might wake up in the middle of the night with their hands around their wives' necks. And while that would be considered, you know, domestic violence would violate the statute, um, it's not this pattern. So this is, you know, he woke up and he thought he was someplace else and he was in danger, so he's, you know, hurting someone else. And, um, but it, you know, so it's not, it doesn't cause this pattern, it may cause a singular incident. Alcohol or other drugs, you know, we see Clearly, that there's lack of inhibition with, especially alcohol and some drugs, um, but that doesn't set up the pattern of controlling behavior in the first place. And so, when it comes to lethality, if someone has a gun around, in particular, and um, they have they're not as inhibited because they've been drinking a lot, this is clearly not a good situation. But it's not what makes the pattern of coercive control exist in the first place. Um, perpetrators out of control behavior, battering tends to be a very controlled behavior. You'll see with injuries that um, they tend to be in places where clothing covers because um, perpetrators are being very calculating about how and when they abuse and leave marks. Um, it's rare to see, you know, a black eye. It happens, but it's rare. And often when it does happen, it's in a situation in which the perpetrator knows the victim is going to hide in the house or they're living way out in the country and no one else is going to see her. Um, also, it's not financial problems or unemployment, but we um, get this question a lot, actually. You know, oh, well, during the economic downturn, you know, was there more domestic violence? Were you getting more calls? And the reality is if someone is already a batterer and is hanging out at home all the time, then there's gonna, there are going to be more incidences. And um, there may be more stress, but it's not causing <coughs> violence again. And you'll see when we start looking at the assessment tools that this is also when um, the perpetrator is out of work, it raises the um, possibility of lethality and level of dangerousness. I would imagine that certain personality disorders would 
not cause, but predispose people to become batterers, like borderline personality disorders, narcissists? So yeah. Um, so there may be this overlap, and certainly um, narcissistic personality disorder is the one that there, um, at least there are characteristics mm -hmm. of narcissism that are almost always, you know, they're in batterers where you can just see how they completely overlap as disregard for other people and thinking that they're superior and entitled. And, yeah. um, so intimate partner violence is a healthcare issue, of course, and there are all of the direct injuries, every single thing you could ever imagine you could see with intimate partner violence. Um, and in particular, strangulation is one to be thinking about. The prevalence of strangulation is absolutely enormous. This shelter study is 68% of abused women, and they've been strangled an average of 6.3 times. And it's absolutely terrifying. And um, so, and it's something that people don't want to talk about a lot of the time, so it's a good thing to kind of be thinking about and looking for. Um, you know, are there certain marks on the neck? You know, is she having trouble talking, that kind of thing. And also, these um, health impacts as a result of the trauma. So, some of you are probably familiar with the ACE studies, the Adverse Childhood Experiences studies. And, um, you know, for a long time, people thought, oh, you know, children have these certain experiences, and then because they've had a you know, tough childhood, then they start to drink or smoke or gain a lot of weight, and then there are these adverse health um, outcomes. But more and more, the research is showing that there's this sort of direct line between um, having the, the stress, and especially in domestic violence and child abuse, where it's this chronic stress, and it's the person who you're supposed to be able to go to for help, so there really feels like there's no escape. And, um, and this chronic kind of stress, trauma, and terror creates the adverse health outcomes more directly than secondarily. Um, which, you know, you can imagine when it comes to, you know, gastrointestinal issues where, you know, we all get upset stomachs when, you know, we get nervous, and this is an extreme example of that. There's a study in um, 2006 in New Hampshire that um, where they actually talked to women who were sexually assaulted and physically assaulted by partners and, um, and showed that you know, twice as many, you know, in women who had been sexually assaulted, twice as many of them um, had chronic disease or health condition in comparison to women who hadn't been sexually assaulted. And for physical assault, and this is physical assault at the hands of um, a partner, you know, it's a third um, as much, so over. So, very interesting. And now for our subject of the day, homicide. Um, so, 30% of women killed in the United States are killed by their partners, which comes to um, around 1,200 women a year. It was thought for a long time, but then they realized that they weren't looking at the women who had already left the relationship, which adds on a lot more. And um, so the, it's now looking like between 1,400 and 1,750 um, a year in the United States. And um, they, so you'll see in this 
case the other talking about femicide because they're talking specifically about the women who are killed. About 300 men are killed every year in the United States as a result of um, domestic violence. We have the <coughs> distinction of having the highest intimate partner homicide rate of any industrialized country. Um, and interestingly, even when men are killed by women, in 67 to 80% of those instances, the woman was previously abused by the man. So it, even if it's not um, defend, you know, trying to defend themselves in that moment, there is there has been this previous violence. Um, and then in addition, there's um, a higher likelihood that it's actually in self-defense kind of in the moment where she's feeling threatened. So murder-suicide turns out to be um, a little bit unique in um, intimate partner homicide. It is and it isn't. So one is that it, there's a much higher likelihood that the victim is married to the perpetrator, 71%. Um, and it's a very low likelihood that there's going to be a woman perpetrating murder-suicide. Um, but also that the perpetrators are more likely to be mentally ill. And so there are cases of murder-suicide where it appears to not be this ongoing, battering, controlling relationship. And one of the reasons I think this is particularly important in healthcare settings is that this, to me, says that for mental health care, this is really something to be thinking about and worrying about because they, we may not be hearing about it as domestic violence, as intimate partner violence. It may not be screening in as intimate partner violence, and yet there is this possibility of this coming. Um, so, yeah. The other part of the murder-suicide that is different is that there are elderly couples that decide to end it together and make sort of a pact, and it's generally the man who you know, does whatever the act is. Um, so it also changes some of the statistics around this, and that may account for some of um, the, you know, couples where there hasn't been previous, previous violence. So in New Hampshire and Vermont, and I think, I'm not sure if in all states, but certainly in most states, every year there's um, a committee that looks at the fatalities from domestic violence or intimate partner violence in the state. And, uh, and you've been on that, right, Deb? I'm, I'm actually on it now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, always very interesting, the um, 2013 fatality reviews obviously isn't out yet. Um, so we're looking at 2012. But you know, domestic violence accounts for an enormous amount of the homicide in New Hampshire. So in 2012, 92%. And granted, some of that is because our other homicide rate is quite low, which is good news. Um, firearms are often involved, and we'll see that when it comes to the assessments as well. Um, in 48% of the cases in New Hampshire, 22% um, stabbing and blunt force, 21%. And if the victim was killed by a partner, in 86% of the cases she was female. And you go, oh, well then what other relationship would there be? And there are other relationships, maybe children, but also um, new partners are at risk. And we see this in particular in Vermont. Um, so in Vermont, 50% of all the homicides were domestic violence related um, over this period of 
for a longer period. And um, once again, firearms are important part of that. Um, when there's a murder-suicide, 80% of the time, there's um, using a firearm. And 46% um, of the um, victims were male, and in a lot of those cases, it was the new partner um, of the female victim who was there when the um, ex-partner came. So um, interestingly, there has been a, a small decline in intimate partner homicide um, since really the 70s. And um, I, I don't want to say ironically, but it, it's, it's certainly interesting that um, almost all of the decline is accounted for by fewer men being killed. So in 1976 um, and years previous, the numbers were um, really equal men and women. But what happened was organizations like WISE popped up around the country and we started to offer services to victims of domestic violence. So instead of having to kill their partners, there are now shelters to go to and other resources. And um, so it has impacted the overall rate, it has protected men, um, and now we need to be looking at what we can do to protect the initial victims. So um, in healthcare, there is an enormous opportunity here to be um, making some connections for victims of intimate partner homicide because in um, this study, more than 40% of the victims had access healthcare in the year before being killed. <clears throat> so um, if we can identify them and you know, help them in whatever way um, we can, then we may be actually able to save lives. Um, around a third of them had sought care for injuries specific to intimate partner violence. So this is not, you know, going to, you know, the doctor because they're having GI problems, but um, specifically injuries. 22% had been seen in the mental health care system, um, and only 4% had access to organizations like WISE. So if we can start to combine forces here and be um, you know, connecting women who are coming into the healthcare system to the services, we may be able to actually be um, helping a lot of women who end up being killed. And we know that our services are helpful, one, because of the kind of reduced rate in male homicides, but also this study showed that there's a 60% reduction in risk of severe assault when victims utilize domestic violence services. So what we're really hoping to do is just connect these dots. So um, lethality assessment is for people who have already been identified as victims of intimate partner violence or domestic violence. So the first thing that has to happen is screening. And um, so we know that many departments here, if not all departments here, um, are screening. All departments have a protocol for screening. And um, it becomes very important, not only that we're screening for what's happening right now, but also what's happened you know, in the past because victims are not safe just because they've left the relationship. 
And this is another place where healthcare can have an enormous impact because um, the lethality assessment that's being done with law enforcement is only when the, there's an active relationship that they're concerned about. So healthcare can um, be kind of picking up some of that slack. And then it really just means referring. So none of us can fix domestic violence. And um, so we aren't here to kind of say we're, we can make this all better. What we do with victims is just work with them to try to figure out where they want to go and try to help them get there in a way that's as safe as possible. Um, so the healthcare, and I know you all have your jobs to be doing, so we aren't expecting you to be doing all of that other legwork, um, but just to give us a call and we come in, um, you, know, you know, in the ED, we just, they call, we go automatically, and then after we get there, the staff introduces the fact that there's an advocate present and, you know, is the victim willing, is the patient willing to talk to an advocate? We're never going to tell them what to do. Our services are free and confidential, and we're really here just to support them in whatever way we can where they are right now. And we um, recognize and respect their expertise in their own lives. And almost always, the patient is willing to talk to us. Um, so, and also, you know, the possibility of thinking about how you might use lethality assessment with other tools, or if it would make more sense to have someone else likewise come in and, and do a lethality assessment piece of it. So the tools themselves. So um, what we're going to be talking about is um, a lethality assessment or a danger assessment. And just for a little bit of background information about what these things are, there's also something called a risk of reoffense assessment. And this is really not a super useful tool for us outside of if we work in corrections, um, probation and parole, where they want to know, you know, is this person, you know, what's he likely to do in this particular situation after having gone through a certain treatment program. Um, for the rest of us, what we can be pretty sure of is if there's been an assault before, there's going to be an assault again. And um, that there's sort of no need to use one of these tools unless we're looking at, you know, what has happened after a program like that or as intervention um, that was supposed to change the risk of reoffense. And then there are these actual lethality assessments where we're looking at, you know, what's the possibility that there's going to actually be a murder here. Um, more and more, we're thinking about this as dangerousness as opposed to lethality because hopefully what we're doing is saying, you know, this is really dangerous and um, by <coughs> getting on the same page and working with um, victims, we'll hopefully be actually avoiding the lethality. Um, and the danger assessment tools have been studied and show really good outcomes, um, in particular in healthcare settings as well as other places. So, um, but you know, it's always kind of difficult to really know if we can really predict. So again, we're always going back to the expert who is the victim themselves. And it turns out that just asking can be extremely helpful. So um, I must say, when I first started to learn about lethality assessment, I was not 
a huge fan because what I kept seeing was, you know, I would be in court with a victim of domestic violence, and you know, the judge is saying, um, "Look, you know, are you sure that you need a protective order?" And she's going, "Yeah, sure, I'm sure. You know, he's got a gun. He's, you know, really dangerous. You know, he tried to strangle me. He did this." And um, you know, so the victim was always trying to say, "Yes, I'm in danger. Help me here." And in general, the systems were not doing a great job of it. So I was saying. What we really need is systems to just listen to victims of domestic violence. We don't need this other tool. And um, in fact, you know, when victims are asked, they are pretty good at assessing their dangerousness, um, the dangerousness of the situation. What you'll see is that I have become an enormous fan because I see all of the other ways that the tools can be used. Um, that can be helpful in addition to assessing the actual level of danger. Um, and one of the barriers for just asking victims is that victims tend to minimize. And um, so, you know, this can be a very healthy coping mechanism. If you're stuck in a situation like this, then it, you know, sort of makes sense to try to figure out how to just get through the day and thus you end up minimizing the impact of what you're dealing with all the time. And it actually starts to feel almost like normal. So, I mean, I talk to women all the time who are just like, yeah, well, you know, it was no big deal. He just hit me, he just punched me, you know, he just put, I actually spoke to a woman last week who said, well, he just had his hands around my neck. And I'm like, huh, hands around your neck, that sounds like not a good thing, it sounds really terrifying. And she then continued to describe, you know, strangulation, you know, where there, she couldn't breathe and he had his hands on her neck. So um, this pattern of minimization is one of the places where having the information can be so, so helpful. What we know is that perpetrators are going to minimize more than victims, though. So, you know, we still need to go to the victims to really be asking the questions and know that the perpetrators are not going to be giving us good information at all. And um, even, you know, it doesn't matter kind of what tool we're using, whatever. If, if a victim is saying that she thinks it's dangerous, then this is something to pay attention to. I think in particular because we know, if anything, there's going to be minimization and it's probably worse, um, not better. So um, this is what some, one of the more recent studies that the danger assessment tool is now based on. Um, so the tool that I will be talking more about and I brought in some copies of and I'll give you the contact information to get it online if you get interested. Um, they had one assessment tool and then they, that was based on interviews with a lot of people, including people working in shelters and victims and law enforcement, and had a tool, and then went back and did another study um, to kind of really nail down more information. And there's a newer um, tool to be used as a result of that. And this is a reflection of the more recent study. So. Um, the perpetrator having access to a gun increased risk more than five times. So we saw in the um, lethality, you know, in New Hampshire and Vermont that, you know, firearms were often used. 
So maybe not a huge surprise, but this access to a gun is very, very important. And um, the woman separated from the perpetrator in the last in the past year was the next most important, and especially if they were highly controlling. So this is what we know is a quote unquote batterer. This is the pattern. So not necessarily this one-time event, but this larger pattern. And, um, and being separated. So sometimes when we're screening, some of the screening tools are only talking about, you know, are you, do you feel safe at home now? You know, is your partner, you know, asking about the partner now. But when we're talking about lethality, looking at, you know, past relationships, and in particular, relationships that have, you know, are over within the past year becomes extremely important. Here's the perpetrator unemployed, increased risk almost four times because they're hanging around, they're frustrated, you know, all of these things that happen. Um, but not, it doesn't set this controlling behavior into motion, it just increases this, the risk. Um, a threat with a weapon or a threat to kill previously increased the risk almost three times. Really, this is a very interesting one and actually was added um, this round. The perpetrator living in the home with a victim's biological child um, that is not his increased the risk almost three times. Um, so that was, a, that was a big surprise for me. And, um, you know, so while I'm talking to someone, you know, if I'm hearing any of these kind of risk factors, I'm kind of filing away, not necessarily jumping in right away, but thinking, wow, this is, you know, one of the things that we really need to be thinking about. Um, the perpetrator being arrested for domestic violence significantly reduced risk, which is great. So law enforcement can have an enormous impact when it comes to domestic violence. Unfortunately, um, arrests aren't made all the time. And so this is a place where, as a society, we know we can be putting a little bit more attention. Forced sex significantly increased risk, and we know it's very common. Um, and over 75% of intimate partner homicides um, or attempted intimate partner homicide um, perpetrators were violently jealous and said things like, if I can't have you, no one can. Um, and when they talk about the attempted intimate partner homicides, in this study, they were um, definitely attempted homicides. I mean, there are people who were stabbed in the neck and shot, and um, you know, there it was clearly an attempted homicide. And um, if a woman is planning to leave, then telling him in person increased the risk five times. So I use this all the time because we're talking to women all the time who are saying, "I'm planning on leaving," and um, and thinking about how they're going to do that. And um, so actually, I have been working with a woman recently who for the New Year's actually said, this is it, this is the year, I'm, I'm doing it. And um, they both are very successful professionals who both you know, make a lot of money. And I think it, it's been sort of easy for her to minimize more because he doesn't fit any stereotype at all about what people might think um, an abuser looks like. And, and she has the resources to leave. Um, and so she was saying, well, you know, so I'm thinking I'm going to get, you know, another place all set up and then I'm going to sit down and talk to him about this. <laughs> so a great opportunity to, to use this information. And so I said, oh, well, let me tell you a little bit about what the research says. 
I don't know, she's gonna know better than me whether this applies to her in her situation. Um, but really good information for her to sit, to hear and to know about and then maybe for her to say, oh yeah, maybe now that I'm thinking about it, that that is riskier and there might be other ways that I should do that. There was a homicide in my community this past year, Kelly Robard. Oh, of course, yeah. And he Most murdered her the day that she found both victims. Right. Yeah, so exactly, yeah, yeah. But if, if they tell them in person, it increases the risk. But you said before, if they don't tell them and they, the perpetrator loses control, don't they right. go, so, go and try to find them and kill them anyway? Right. It, it, so this is the thing. Leaving is dangerous. But of course, you know, Being we don't dangerous. want to be telling women <laughs> that they have to stay in abusive relations for their whole life because it's dangerous to leave. So what we are always doing is trying to figure out what is the safest way that they can move forward in their lives and the ways that they want to. So if they want to leave, are there ways that they can do that that are going to be safe? And for some people, women, that means moving across the country, changing your name, changing your social security number, you know, completely changing your identity. And if there are children involved or marital assets, that becomes very, very, very difficult. Um, but some people do that. And I will say, I actually, when um, I first started to do this work, which is a long time ago, you know, 25 years or so ago, um, there was a woman who was actually working at the shelter program that I was volunteering at who um, had left and um, her, and she had changed her, I didn't even know that she had changed her name. She had a different identity, and her ex-husband came and found her and her children and killed them. Yeah. So it's um, horrible and and so common. It's yeah, just really tragic. So so something like that's pretty significant for somebody because what happens to if they get a job for the whole the rest of their life, all their assets? Mm -hmm. Do they let that go, or can they just start? Scratch or how does that happen? Some people do. They just, it's so important to get away. Their life is so important. Yeah. Really start. And these are real, yeah, I mean, there are these essential conversations about, right, the meaning of life, really, you know, what, what are you going to choose to do with the rest of your life for some people? And for some perpetrators, you know, they'll get a restraining order and they just say, it's not worth it to me. You know, I don't want to go to jail. I'm going to move on. You know, I, and which usually means I'm going to find someone else and abuse them. Um, and you know, and then there are other people who are completely, you know, just feel totally entitled and as though that no one can do that to me. And I don't care if I end up in jail. Um, there, she can't do that to me. And victims generally have a pretty good sense of what it is they're dealing with. And so have to make those decisions. And, you know, our, if there has been significant physical violence, we do have a criminal law system that, you know, it's illegal. And um, there are people who go to jail for significant periods of time. Um, and but 
the I know the women that we work with at Wise are you know Sperm Ben is like what's going to happen when he gets out? It's going to be that much worse, and um, you know he meets people in jail who know people outside, and um, it's not as easy as um, we would like it to be, but it certainly removes him from the picture for a period of time, which makes it easier. But women are get very desperate. My husband and I were uh, a safe house back in the late 70s, early 80s, and actually was, was a part of that whole yeah, system nice. in the Concord yeah. area. And um, we had several women that literally got picked up in the middle of the night with their suitcase and came to our house yeah. for a week. You know, the to total isolation with um, people from WISE and the domestic violence people in Concord helping them be safe. They were just staying with us. We had we had um, women with kids we didn't know. We had a room set up with clothes and the whole nine yards, but it was very dangerous. And we were not known, obviously, yeah. as a safe house at all. But there were some middle of the night pickups that did. Yeah, it's amazing. It is the amazing. work that you do. It's amazing. And so there's a network of shelters around the country, and so some women say, you know, yeah, I'm going to move to Idaho or wherever, and we can get them there, and um, usually find a place for them there. Mm -hmm. Oh my God! So I'm just looking at the time, and we haven't even talked about the danger assessment. So. Um, the actual danger assessment, and it's online, there are um, printouts of the 20 questions um, sheet in the back. But, and it, it can be used in sort of any way you want. They really encourage you to do their training online. That gives you the ability to use it as a weighted tool, but it can be used in all sorts of ways more flexibly than that. So they're asking questions of the actual victims about what, um, they, you know, what has happened in their particular relationship. And they're um, talking to the woman, so, you know, it's something that some, you can actually give to the individual to do themselves, and there's been some research that has shown that when the victim does it themselves, that it's more accurate, instead of someone kind of reading the questions out to them. There's also a calendar, and this is, I think, really interesting for just thinking about how we might do things um, Certainly for WISE, it has been a very helpful tool. So having someone actually sit down with a calendar and look at, um, you know, so and Mark, you know, which days did he do what and, you know, when did it get worse? And, um, and it, it, it helps people with minimization a lot. So 38% um, in the study said, at first said there hadn't been any increase in severity or um, the frequency of the physical violence. And then after they did the calendar, they changed their answer. So um, pretty big change. And then there are the questions. And we talked about most of the questions because they reflect directly what was in the latest research. Um, they also are using language that is more common. So number 10 is, did it, does he ever try to choke you? Because people don't say strangle, they say choke. Um, so it's meant to be very accessible and um, you know as, as comfortable as possible to answer. So we go through the rest of them, um, and 
um, and then you just total up the yeses. And then there's this scoring, um, and they have tried to make it clear that even if you know, you're know you a one, that it can still be really dangerous. In, um, when they looked at the women who had been <coughs> murdered, um, 83% of them had answered eight or more as a yes. So, um, you know, we want to use these forms, obviously, never when the abuser is around, as with any other screening tool that you're going to be using for intimate partner violence. And then document it safely if you're going to be documenting. Um, and then, you know, it's helpful for women to sometimes do it on their own, but, you know, we do it all the time with people, and um, they seem to appreciate having someone else to talk to about it as we go through it. And it's a great way to talk about what some of the realities are. So um, Lebanon Police Department and WISE um, has a protocol where at every single domestic violence call that they go to, they do a dangerous dangerousness, or it's called a lethality assessment. And um, then they call WISE, and they say, you know, we have, we're here with someone who answered yes to two, three, and five, or whatever, and, um, you know, we'd like her to talk to you, and we have a very brief conversation. One of the things that happens is they say um, to the woman, women in situations like yours have been killed, and we say that as well. So one of the beauties of a tool like this is that we're kind of speaking the same language, so it's no longer, oh, they're the cops, and then they're the advocates, whatever, we share this language. And um, it's something that I think happens when you know there's healthcare screening and you know things like lethality assessment in healthcare as well. It reduces the minimization. It can really help focus. So sometimes victims are just really you know nervous and they've been traumatized, and so it's a way of just being like, this is what we're going to do right now. There's a more accurate assessment of what actually is happening and what might happen in the future. And um, we are partnering in this process, so it's not like I'm telling her what to do or she's saying, you know, you don't know anything about this, we are very much a partner. Um, and it also can be a really powerful tool in court proceedings. So she's just gone through this list and said, yes, he does this, 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 and this, and this. And um, for the courts to see that is, can be very powerful. And then from our perspective, you know, we have something, certainly for the police, they're thrilled, especially at homes where they've been to repeatedly, and it can be very frustrating that there's something that they're doing now. Um, and it can really quantify, you know, this is why I'm so concerned about you. It's not just some kind of like, you know, I also have a feeling in my stomach, like, no, these are actually things that reflect lethality. Um, and then there's the connection that can be made between the places that are having more contact with victims. So we saw way at the beginning that healthcare was seeing victims, 40% of victims in the year before they were, being, they were killed saw a healthcare provider, and only 4% of those women accessed an organization like WISE. And for law enforcement, some studies show as many as 55% of victims had accessed law enforcement services about the intimate partner violence before they were murdered. So if those connections are built, then we have a much higher likelihood of saving lives. 
So we always want to take someone's um, fear or the assertion that they're in danger very seriously, whether or not they answer yes to any questions. Um, we know we aren't going to be able to fix anything, but we can support and help women as much as possible to kind of get on the path that they want to be on. And none of us can do this alone, so we all have to be working together to use the tools and, um, you know, helping women kind of get safe. And that's all. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. When was um, WISE established in Andrew County? So WISE was established in... Um, let's see, we just had our fourth, so, um, so around 19, I think it was 71, yeah. per se, and cool, so, and then what happened was, so there, the University of New Hampshire, um, you know, this was like the women's movement, yeah. and um, so the University of New Hampshire was saying, you know, we've got to do something for women in New Hampshire, especially single moms. We want single moms to have opportunities to work and have childcare and kind of get on their feet. So they did a training for groups from around the state and that training was called WISE, it was Women's Information Service. Mm -hmm. And whoever went to that training got a little grant to take back to their community and do this work in their communities. And so that's how WISE was started. Then within a couple of years, um, another group got some money to start to do work around domestic violence. And that ended up at Headrest. And then Headrest kind of said, well, this is sort of silly. You know, we're doing substance abuse. And then there's another group over here that's specifically working with women and all of the people who are accessing the services for domestic violence are women. So why don't we see if they want to do that work? So they kind of got together and then ended up um, giving wise the domestic violence piece. And meanwhile, all of the other wises in the state died, and other organizations cropped up um, to do the domestic violence work or the sexual assault rape crisis work. And then um, slowly, you know, we formed coalitions in the states and around the country. And that's the story. <coughs> So there are the two forms. I brought 10 of them. So there, and I mean, you can get it all online. The danger assessment um, um, website is, is very informative, I think. It's really just the tool and then how to get trained if you want to get trained. And how, actually, some, they talk about one healthcare project that uses the danger assessment within the hospital. And I would assume here it would probably be more likely that you would call WISE and then, you know, Use, we would figure out how we we're going to use the tool together. Um, and so there's that tool, but also the one that we use with the Lebanon Police Department that's being used around the country pretty successfully. Thank you. Good. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you.